All right, so go ahead and take out your Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at our sixth church in our Revelation series that Christ wrote a letter personally to. So while y'all are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, as we open up your word, continue to remind us that this is you, Lord Jesus, speaking to your church. Not from a position of a lack of understanding, but because you do understand, because you know. Father, show us what you have for us. Jesus, speak your truth to us. Teach us to be your church, as your desire is to present a spotless bride. And then we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit to enable us and to strengthen us that we might live that out. Bringing honor and glory to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we come to the Church of Philadelphia. And I tell you what the name Philadelphia means, but most people know that it means the city of brotherly love. That's exactly right. But did you know it's the youngest of the seven cities? It's 28 miles southeast of Sardis. Situated in Lydia along the Hermes River Valley. I didn't know any of that. I looked it up on Google. It was um, backed by volcanic cliffs and through the land. It was rich and fertile because of all the volcanic activity. But Philadelphia, because of the volcanic activity, was also located in a, a place that was dangerous to live and on a fault line, which means that they experienced a lot of earthquakes. Its location caused the city to be in constant danger from these earthquakes, and they experienced shocks as an everyday occurrence. It's almost like they lived on the San Andreas fault line, but worse. So as a result, many of the inhabitants actually didn't live in the city. They lived in huts outside the city. Philadelphia was a city, it was founded with a specific purpose and a special intention. It was situated on the border of Mysia, Lydia, and Persia. It was a border town. We can probably relate to it a little bit. It, it actually connected two continents together. Even though it was in this strategic position, it's not like the other cities that we looked at that were created into a garrison town, like they were just the cannon fodder to hold them off. That wasn't the, the uh, intention that... Philadelphia was established here. Philadelphia was established with the deliberate intention that it might be a missionary outpost, not for the church, but for the Hellenization of the area surrounding. They, they would be a missionary outpost for Greek culture, Greek language, and Hellenism, ultimately. They were a center to spread the Greek language, culture, and manners throughout the Asian province, and it fulfilled its work so well that the Lydians, by 19 A.D., had forgotten their own language and all but considered themselves Greek. Philadelphia is a prosperous city known for beautiful buildings, violent earthquakes, and very frequent evacuations. It's located on one of the greatest highways of the world as a gateway from one town to another. It was actually nicknamed Little Athens. It was rebuilt by Caesar Tiberius after it was uh, destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. 
And the city also has a Christian testimony that continues in this city to this century. This church may picture the modern missionary era of church history, and it's definitely the epitome of the true and faithful because of their love. You see, Jesus in John 13, verse 35 said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It was the influential church of Jesus Christ. Most, most when they teach the, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, they say, oh, it's the faithful church. Oh, it's the loving church. I see it as the influential church. Yes, there's faithfulness involved and there's love involved, but I think the influence is the focus here. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if we desire to be any church, let us desire to be the influential church like the church of Philadelphia. So join with me. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3, it starts out, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to follow our same outline format. The first one that we come to is that Jesus commends this church. The commendation from Jesus to the church of Philadelphia is found in verses 7 to 8. It says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door, and no one can close, because you have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One and the True One. Like Athens, Philadelphia was a temple warden. You say, what's that? Well, I found out that there's a fancy name for a city that has a dedication to emperor worship. It's called a temple warden. It's a title for the city that says they have provincial privilege to worship the Caesar. Isn't that awesome? That's a great honor for a city, right? You have the great honor to worship Caesar. But the city's fought over that, right? Remember, remember we learned that Ephesus was like we had the title first and then 
So then they became the city to get two nominations for it. They're like, we're better than you. Well, Philadelphia had the same um, recognition for that. When a city does that, though, here's what they're saying. They're giving the emperor the title son of the Holy One. So it's more likely why Christ gives a countering introduction for himself. For he is the one and only begotten of the Father. It was needful to remind the church of Philadelphia that Jesus is the Holy One, the true one. Because there are many around that want to give that title around to a mere man. We do well when we remember that Jesus is the Holy One and the true one. There's two words in the Greek that translate to true. One of those words has a definition that means true and not false. It'd be truth, right? The other means true and not fake. That's reality. That's real. That's genuine. That's the Greek word alephinos. That's the word that Jesus uses. Jesus is true because he is the real God and the real man. Peter alludes to this in his epistle. He writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy. You see, being holy dignifies Jesus, sets him apart. It says that he alone is the one who's worthy to judge the spiritual condition of the church of Philadelphia, the spiritual life and condition of this church. But Jesus also introduces himself with a different title as well. And it's quite peculiar. He says, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. Where's that come from? I'm so thankful for like searching and software that does all this for me because to, to track that down would have been a much more laborious process. It comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20, where the prophet writes, he says, On that day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him, and I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judea. He says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. And I will drive him like a peg into a firm place, and he will be a throne of honor for his father's family. Now, Eliakim was a servant of King David, and he was given the key of David, which gave him access and authority over the wealth of King David. You see, it implies the one who has control and power over the treasures of the king. Jesus says, I have the key of David. I am in control over the treasures of my father. And what I open, no one can close. And what I close, no one can open. He's saying, in essence, I'm the one who shuts and no one can open. And who opens and no one can shut. He can't be opposed. He governs over everything. 
We need to understand, and I think he wanted Philadelphia to understand this, Jesus has complete administrative power with incontestable control to admit or exclude. And after that introduction, if, if I'm that church, I'm kind of like going, oh no. What's going on? And so Jesus again starts off, he says, I know your works. The same as he has with every church so far, which just goes on to continue to solidify the truth. There is not a church anywhere where Christ is not aware of their works. There's no church, no matter how small, no matter how large, no matter how weak or otherwise measured, that will escape his intimate and experiential knowledge. Jesus says, look. And that word has the connotation, behold. Hold it in your hand, look at it, see. He says, I place before you an open door. You've been given the gift of an open door. An opportunity, and in the context of the city and what it was established for, in the context of the city and what Jesus is going to praise it for, it was an open door for missionary and influential efforts. I believe that Jesus is connecting the founding purpose of the city of Philadelphia, spreading the Greek ideas in the lands beyond to his founding purpose for his church, especially the church of Philadelphia. You see, he, he says, you have an open door to carry to men the message of the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. The world founded this city to be influential, but Jesus says, I placed an open door in that influence for you to be influential for my kingdom. Jesus wants to use us in our places of influence that we already have, that the world may have already given us. Jesus says, you already have influence that they've given you. And I give you an open door to be a further influence for my name. You see, the church of Philadelphia is commended for being influential. And a church is influential when they remain faithful. If you're a faithless church, you have no influence. Jesus says the door cannot be closed. It seems like sometimes when we look out and we see all these executive orders being signed and we see these different things taking place, we go, oh no, there goes our chance to be influential. Jesus says, as long as I have that door open, you're influential. No one can close that door. They may make it look like the door is closed, but Jesus says, I, I have that door open. And it seems like you have little power to change that. And Jesus would agree with you. You do have little power. Philadelphia was weak enough to be strong in the Lord. They were weak enough to be strong in the Lord. You see, God's strength is most evident in our weakness. Paul brought this to mind for us in 2 Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He says, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. 
even says concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Those times when you plead with God and you're like, God, please take this away from my life. Please take this out of my life. Please remove this from my life. And God doesn't seem to be answering you. You say it louder because maybe he doesn't hear you. But sometimes he answers like this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he says, my power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses. I take pleasure in insults. I take pleasure in hardships. I take pleasure in persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, sometimes a church can be too strong or too big or too sure of itself for God to really use as the influence that he desires. See, the church of Philadelphia really had a poverty of spirit that allowed them to remember and to know and to continuously seek God because they needed him. This is probably what led them to keep Christ's word and not deny his name. It's, it's that thing where it's like what Peter said when uh, all the disciples left Jesus when he told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they all walked away because it was a hard saying. And Jesus even goes, Peter, are you going to go too? And Peter responds, where else would we go, Lord? You're the very food that we need. When it gets tough, it's like, how could I deny his word? How can I deny his name? That's what I need right now. Without it, I would definitely be done away with. So that's Christ commending the church of Philadelphia. Then we move on to the exhortation. He's, ex he's exhorting them. He says, note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come down and bow at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. First off, did you notice? Philadelphia received no rebuke. This church received no rebuke, none whatsoever, nothing from Christ. I want us to see that Philadelphia has three traits for a church. They had influence for the gospel. Christ said you have an open door. They had reliance on God. They remembered that they were little in strength. And they had faithfulness to Jesus. They kept his word and they didn't deny his name. These three things caused this church for Christ to have nothing bad to say about it. We sometimes think that we have to do all these great things, but if we stick to these three things, we are a church that Christ has no rebuke for. In some ways, these features seem very unspectacular. But Jesus was completely pleased. The usual yardsticks of measurement for success are merely earthly measures and not heavenly. Because at the end, Jesus already told us what he's going to say when each servant walks through the doors of heaven. He's not going to say, well done, good and successful servant. 
He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, success as a Christian or as a church is not measured by any other standard but that of faithfulness. Nothing else matters. You can do anything you want, but if you're not faithful, it doesn't matter. And so Jesus is pleased. And so he sees their faithfulness already. And so what he does, instead of exhorting them on how to correct and get back to faithfulness, he exhorts them so that they will remain faithful. Because he wants to seek to perfect and purify his bride. The exhortation is that those who've been giving them trouble, those who've been making life difficult, those who he says are of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be brethren, Jews, but are not, instead are liars, those who turn you over to the emperor, those who turn you in for not paying your homage, those who would call and have your church shut down because you're not following the rules. Jesus says, I will make them come and bow at your feet. The Jews. The Jews who are Jews only in name, but yet thought that they were something because they had some sort of DNA. You see, those Jews who are Jews in name only somehow thought that they were superior to others. And they thought that the Gentiles would be made to bow down to them just simply because they're Jews. Gentiles were beneath them. But Jesus says, I will show them. Instead, they will bow at your feet. And then Jesus gives something that we all hope for for one day, don't we? As we struggle, as we persevere, as we fight through this world, as we go up against all the spiritual warfare that we face, we're waiting for that day when we're what? When we're vindicated, right? That day when our faith shall be our sight. Jesus gives the promise that there will be a day of vindication. And oh, how they longed back then to be vindicated. And how it's yearning in our hearts today that we would be vindicated. Because to be vindicated means that you are shown that you are in the right, that you are doing the right thing, that you're following the right way. To show that we haven't loved Jesus in vain. We're not following some cleverly devised fairy tale. To show that Jesus didn't forsake us. This has been the cry all throughout history. Psalm 25. The psalmist writes, he says, Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause, they will be disgraced. They're spoken of by the prophet, Isaiah. It says, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated for all eternity. And then one of my favorite verses of the New Testament that I probably quote just about every single message, usually towards the end when I'm inviting people to give their lives to Christ. Romans 10 Verse 11, for the scripture says that everyone who believes on him 
will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus promises they will know that he loved them. When the people looked on Jesus as he was on the cross, they had such disdain. He thinks he's the savior of the world. Let him save himself. In eternity, at the judgment, they're going to see as he comes and he gathers his people and he takes them out of that judgment. But they have to stay. They will know Jesus loves his church. The same promises for us. Everyone in our life who gives us a hard time who says, why do you believe that stuff? Why do you do that? You're so ignorant. You're so foolish. Jesus promises there will be vindication. They will understand that they were wrong. We hope and pray that they would understand at this side of heaven, that we would share the, the gospel, that we would be influential, and that they would come to know it before it's too late. But if we take care of God's work, he's saying he'll take care of us. He'll take care of our battles. He'll take care of our enemies. We don't have to fight our enemies. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to defeat your enemies because Christ will. And he has some marvelous promises for this church and for us here this evening. You see, Jesus writes his promises to them in verse 10. He says, because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus gives this promise to the church because they kept his command to endure. And he says he will keep them from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Well, what's he talking about there? I believe that this promise is to the faithful church concerning the rapture. Specifically concerning a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, pre-tribulational is a $10 word to say before the rapture. I'm, I'm sorry, to say before the tribulation. The rapture before the tribulation. The tribulation is that time that will be covered as we go through Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That's the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period set aside for the nation of Israel for the punishment of the rejection of their Savior and their Messiah. And it's known as Jacob's trouble. It's not a local trouble. Granted, there was probably a specific application to the Roman uh, persecution that was going to come upon them, but in the grand scale of things, it involves all who dwell on the earth. It's a global thing. And this promise from Jesus corresponds with the promise that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, it says, For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord and the second part tells us it's a pre-trib rapture. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It wouldn't be very encouraging if it says, first you have to go through the worst time in the history of the world. But it's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to be an encouragement. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything written to you. There's nothing else that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes for the rapture. Did you know that? Nothing else prophetically has to be fulfilled. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And the promise, the greatest promise of all. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I point this verse out when I talk about pre-tribulation rapture is because of this. The tribulation period is not Satan unleashing havoc upon the world. The tribulation period is God emptying his wrath as judgment upon an unbelieving and rejecting world. Christ saved us from God's wrath. Why would we receive it anyway? did not appoint us to wrath, to, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that this adds credence to the pre-trib because Jesus says it's because of their endurance. Now I'm going to get a little bit geeky in here. We're going to go into a little bit of the language. Not too deep, though. I, I really kept it top level. But it's all about the tense that's used, and it's all about the pro, uh, prepositions that are used. Endure is in the past tense. This shows that it's something that the Christians had already done before the hour of trial, which has not yet come upon the world. You see, this promise is a reward for past endurance, not the equipping to endure in the future. And so they will be saved from the hour of testing, hour indicating the whole and entire time period, the hour of the hour of is a phrase that's used to, to include the entire time of. And so the hour of that entire time period, Christ said they will not enter the time of testing. And he couldn't have stated it more explicitly. When you go to the original language, he uses the words keep from, and instead of giving you all the Greek words, it's just he could have said keep in, he could have said keep through, he could have said, keep out, as in take them out. But he said, keep from. It's in sharp contrast to the meanings of keep through and all the other prepositions that could have been used. If he wanted to say, keep through a time of trouble, or be taken out from within the tribulation, there's a different verb and a different preposition that would be used. Clearly stated, Christ promised to keep the church from that time period. 
even though the church at Philadelphia would go on to glory via death long before the time of trouble would come, we see that the church is taken to be typical of the body of Christ standing true to the faith. The promise seems to go beyond the Philadelphia church and is extended to all who are believers in Jesus Christ, the faithful church of Christ, the influential church of Christ. Now the second promise of Jesus adds credence to the future hope of being raptured pre-trib. Jesus says, I am coming soon. That word soon doesn't just mean like you can time your watch to it, like we got five more minutes to wait for Christ and then he'll be here. It's not on a definite timetable. What he's saying is, I will come suddenly, I will come quickly, and I can come at any moment from here to whenever I come. Imminently. In fact, John Corson in his application commentary says, the Greek word is taku, and the Greek word translated quickly actually means suddenly. Meaning the Lord can come at any moment, and only we who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture can say, it could be today. Mid- and post-tribulationists, on the other hand, have no recourse but to say, the Lord can't come back yet because the tribulation hasn't started yet. But we can say it could be today. And that's the throbbing heartbeat of Bible prophecy, as John Corson puts it. So Jesus' imminent return necessitates that they stay focused and hold on without giving in or giving up so that they can retain their crowns. What does that mean? I don't have a crown yet. Do you have a crown? But we who endure to the end are promised the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. What he's saying is that we need to endure and hold on to the end so that we may retain our rewards. We all know about the Bema Seat of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ in which we're judged for the works that we do in the name of Christ by the motivation that we do for Christ. Jesus is returning and we have to maintain our watchful attitude. We have to maintain what we have so that we don't lose it last minute. There's so many times when you're being faithful and you continue being faithful until the moment that you stop being faithful because we got careless we got lazy, or worse, we got complacent. The next church that we look at next week is the apathetic church. A lot of people think that hate is the opposite of love. The opposite of love is apathetic, is apathy. Let me put it in the right tense, then it makes more sense. It's apathy, and apathy comes from complacency. And apathy is actually the opposite of faithfulness. So Jesus also promises to the one who conquers. He gives them this wonderful promise, especially for this area. It has such deep meaning for them. He says that he will make them a pillar in the temple of his God, and, he will never go, and they will never go out again. Do you think maybe he's addressing the fact that they lived outside the city? And every time they were in the city and the ground started to shake and they were on unstable ground, they had to leave? It's almost like he's saying that you no longer have to evacuate. The safety that Jesus promises is safety and stability that you never have to wonder about ever again because you're in the house of God. And he says that God will honor them. That's what it means when he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Ancient cities honored great leaders by erecting pillars. And you know what they would do with those pillars? 
They would inscribe their names on it. He says that I will make you pillars in my God's temple and I will inscribe his name. I'll inscribe the new name of the, uh, the name of the new Jerusalem and I'll inscribe my new name. To be an influential church is to be effective and powerful. There's no more effective and powerful church than a faithful church. Faithful in love to each other, faithful to Christ and faithful in service, enduring and faithfully awaiting the return of Christ. Christ commended this church because they made the most of the influence that God gave them. My prayer is that we as a church and we as individuals would also seize the day as individuals that we would not squander the influence that God has given us. Each of us has our own area of influence where we speak life into people and what life are we speaking to them? Christ has opened up a door. No one can close that door. Christ will close that door. You may think that you're not having any effect or any influence. You may be feeling like you're talking to a brick wall. But Christ says that door is open until he closes it. Sometimes, though, when God sets an open door before us, we don't always see it or grasp it. Spurgeon has a wonderful illustration for this. He says, A man once came to him and asked how he could win others to Jesus. And Spurgeon said, what do you do? The man said, I'm an engine driver on a train. Then Spurgeon said, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? I don't know. Go back, said Spurgeon. Find out and start there. Closest area of influence. Sometimes we feel like we have, but we can't do much. Thankfully, our church has never felt that way. We, we've been a, a church plant now for seven years. Next year will be eight years. I'm already looking forward to next year. But we could have just said, you know what? We're a small church. We can't do anything. We won't get involved in anything. We won't do anything. If we were a bigger church, we could do more. But it's not the size of a church that determines its ministry. It's its faithfulness to the call and command of Jesus Christ. Do you know that God's commandments are also his enablements? If he commands that you do something, do you think he's going to command you to do something that's impossible for you? Or is he going to make a way for you? You say, well, he tells me to be righteous. You're absolutely right he does, but he made a way, didn't he? Christ died on the cross so that you could be righteous. If Christ gives an open door, he's going to see to it that you can walk through it. Trust him for that. Be faithful in that. Once we see that open door, we have the choice to walk through it. And he's looking for those who will walk through it. That's the faithful church. That's the church that has the influence. That's the church that maintains that open door. Use every part of our influence for his gospel and his glory. It's unbelief that sees obstacles. It's it's unbelief that says, I can't. 
But faith says, there's nothing in my way. It's just a, another way for God to show what he wants to do. It's an opportunity. The Lord holds the keys. He controls the outcome. What do we have to fear when we finally put our trust in him and know that he controls the outcome? Nobody can close the door as long as he's keeping them open. The church today, as I look out, not our church, but we have to be careful lest we fall into the same mistakes, but the church, as I've seen, has surrendered because of unbelief. How many churches still have their doors closed today? The church has surrendered its influence because of fear and because of hesitancy. I don't know if God's asking us to do this or not. I don't know. Well, did you know that the Bible says that you take the steps, you, you pick out a path, but the Lord directs your steps as you walk in faith? But you have to take that step. God's not going to be like lighting up the pathway for you. You've got to start taking the step. And sometimes he'll say, no, not that way. We're going to go this way. I can't tell you how many times he's done that to me. But I can tell you this much. He's answered every single time I've stepped out, whether I'm going in the right direction or I'm not. Because he's not going to let you continue in the wrong direction if you're listening for him. You will not be put to shame, Christian. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus, for he shall be revealed. Philippians 2.10 says that every name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Remember that you're a pillar. If you remain faithful in Christ, he's going to make you a pillar in the temple of his God. And you know what? God's pillars are not made of stone. There's no temple in the heavenly city. Did you know that? Revelation 21, it says, So he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now it's going to describe it. So if you want to see what, where you're going to be living in eternity, you can go in and, and see it and you can measure it out. And if you're really good at like, um, what, are they, what are they called, area formulas, you can figure out exactly how big this city of Jerusalem is. But if you skip down to verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb are its temples. But you are a pillar in that with his name written on you. His pillars are faithful people who bear his name for his glory. Let's continue to be that faithful church. Maintain that influence. Look for those open doors. Christ has said he's put them before us. Let us walk in them. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. Father, may this be an encouragement to us, Lord. Maybe it sets the standard high for us. Maybe, maybe we've kind of become slack a little bit in, in our faithful following of you, Father. But Lord, awaken us, re reignite that flame in us that we would look for those open doors that we would seek to use the influence that you've blessed us with. But Lord, not for our glory, that we would reveal your glory. Help us be faithful in your name, Father. 
Help us to be faithful in the fact that it's not our strength. We have to become weak so that your strength can be shown through us. We have to endure being weak. We have to endure suffering. We have to endure all that faithfully for you, Father God. But oh, you promise that we won't be put to shame in it. We may endure for a time, but our suffering's not forever. Oh, and thank heavens, Lord, that you promise that you take us out before the real trouble comes. Help us to use that influence so that we can keep as many out of that trouble as you desire, Father God. Lord, help us as a church to continue to remain faithful, continue to keep together, continue to show that brotherly love that we would be, as the Church of Philadelphia, an influential church in the area around us, in the place where you provided us with open doors. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this last song, I want to invite anybody to come up. If you need prayer, maybe, maybe it spoke to you and, and you realize you haven't been using your influence as God has called you to. Maybe you've been fearful. Maybe you just kind of put it aside. You didn't think that God wanted to use you because there's so many better people that you can point out and say are much better equipped. Come up and ask for prayer. Let us pray together and see that God wants to be that strength and power in your life. He wants to equip you. And if you've been listening tonight and, and you realize that you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I also invite you, don't leave here without knowing him as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to be up here up front, and you're welcome to come up and say, hey, that's me. I, I want to know more about Christ being my Savior. And I will talk to you about it. I'll pray with you about it. And we can know for sure before you leave tonight that your place in him is secure forever. We thank you, Lord, for that promise that all who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.